Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Brian Chu, co-founder, CTO, and head of growth at Webflow. In this episode, we talked about Webflow's no-sugarcoating product philosophy, the no-code movement, why churn and retention at Webflow have taken the back seat, and how they overcome their new user's learning curve through total transparency. We also discussed how Brian and his team use customer segmentation to take their product to the next level, the data book at Webflow, which they call the Rosetta Stone, and how to eliminate bias when collecting and analyzing data. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode. And if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With the browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. These, these don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's a really exciting episode to have you today, Brian. Uh, for the listeners, uh, Brian is the founder, CTO, and head of growth of Webflow, uh, a no code website builder. And in case you've been living under a rock, it's awesome. Uh, I actually decided to rebuild the podcast website using Webflow recently and was just blown away by how far the no-code visual website editing has come. Uh, it's live now and I'd actually encourage everybody to check it out uh, at churn.fm to see what's actually possible. Uh, but I barely scratched the surface, I think, when it comes to the capabilities that Webflow offers. But I digress. Let's go back to Bryant. <laughs> He's also a senior venture partner of Pioneer Fund and previously served as the CTO of Vungle, where he helped build up the business into a multi-million dollar company and led the design and development of Vungle's uh, SDKs that were installed on over 60 million plus devices. He also served time as a software engineer at Symantec, Qualcomm, and Intuit, Brainstorm. So my first question for you, Bryant, is what excites you most about the no-code movement and what part do you hope that Webflow will, Webflow will play? Great question. Um, and before I go there, I mean, I'm looking at Turn F1's website and it looks fantastic. I had no idea you're such a talented designer at the same time. Um, but that's, I mean, just looking at this website, I think is a great place to start because if you look, take a look at churn.fm, um, you'll see that it is not just like a traditional, like, podcasts landing page with, you know, very traditional layout. Like you've, you've, taken the the hard work of really thinking about how you want a user to navigate this website and it's got like this really nice left nav really great photos really good hover effects and that's kind of what no code is about and that's kind of what webflow is really looking to allow someone like you to do which is 
you've got an idea for what your business, what your blog, what your portfolio is going to look like. And you have the same tools that a developer has to be able to go out and visually create, visually develop the end product. So the biggest, the biggest joy that I have, honestly, every day is actually just looking at what people are creating. So you're, there's people creating websites for charities. There's people creating e-commerce stores for small businesses that have been impacted by COVID. And then, of course, you've got, you know, podcast uh, landing pages and marketing sites like yours. So Webflow is really about just pushing the boundaries of what's possible to develop, you know, powerful bespoke software completely visually and we feel and we honestly believe that if we are to stick true to this mission and vision that we can multiply the potential of the internet by by giving non-developers as well as developers a faster easier way to produce the software that they have imagined in their heads, just in the same way that you've essentially, you know, thought about this churn.fm website and you built it completely from scratch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously myself as well, I have a little bit of a background and built websites before, but uh, like I had come across as well sort of the, the no-code movements a long time ago and like to kind of look at things and it was sort of a really immature market back then and uh, still you weren't able to do, but like what Webflow unlocked, like some of the capabilities would have maybe taken me months to uh, complete right. the site if I really wanted to do it into the detail that and, I went with this. So. And, that had, and that has a lot to do with our product philosophy, which is we're not going to sugarcoat anything. We're not going to essentially say we have magic AI software for you to kind of build a layout and we are going to write the code for you. So what Webflow actually is, is that it's actually a very sophisticated abstraction over the underlying concepts of web technology. And, you know, we, when we launched in 2013, you know, from what I understand, it was the first and only uh, tool that abstracted away certain things like, uh, CSS display, um, columns, uh, DOM and box model in a way that is represented in a visual UI so that when you are building with Webflow, what you're doing is actually visually coding as opposed yeah. to drawing boxes and squares and having an algorithm essentially guess what the underlying code should be. So, you know, successful users of Webflow need to make this, they need to cross the chasm and jump like, like, overcome a mental leap where it's it's a design tool but what it is also is it's also a development tool and for users that make a successful jump um, and make that mental leap then they become uh, empowered yeah i can actually i absolutely relate to that and see it as well because i found what really helped was having that background in understanding how like html works and CSS works works was I think the learning curve was a lot quicker and uh, be able to ramp up uh, to get to the point where we can produce something really cool. If you understand sort of basic concepts of coding and uh, uh, being able to build sites. So I think in terms of the abstraction, I think it's definitely uh, something that I could see in the system as well that was designed, but definitely like the ease as well was just unbelievable. So big, big fan. Uh, actually rebuilt in a couple of other websites using Webflow after oh, it just because wow. I wanted to keep on playing around with it. But power user. <laughs> yeah, power user, power user. So let's uh, let's actually jump onto the topic then that we have today is churn and retention. 
And funny that's like I messaged you, I think it was on Twitter uh, or LinkedIn, I can't remember exactly, but uh, inviting you to the show, obviously, as a big fan of using the service, like I wanted to try and uh, find out like how things were being dealt with. And you actually mentioned that it wasn't something that you had really looked into and retention wasn't a main focus for the company. And I can obviously imagine why, because I'm sure you're experiencing some insane uh, growth. Um, but I wanted to get a little bit more context uh, around it as well. And uh, maybe if you let us know sort of where you're at currently, yeah. like why has it taken the back seat? Yeah, this is, this is a fantastic question. And actually, honestly, until you asked me, you know, I didn't really... I didn't really spend enough cycles to really think about it. But I think, you know, as as I was thinking about coming onto the show, you know, a few different things stuck out to me with regards to why Webflow why Webflow hasn't, you know, dove deep into churn and and uh and uh, retention. And I suppose it goes back to the core ethos of our product, which is the fact that it's the first and only product that uh, allows users to visually manipulate the underlying web technologies, which which requires users to make this you know uh, mental leap. And in order to do so, we have to convince users that that mental leap is actually uh, worth taking. Because there's actually a lot of tools out there like Wix, Squarespace. You know, they they give you a really beautiful website and they have customizability. So. We actually spend a lot of our time actually on the marketing side, just making sure that people are aware of our product, but then also educating them about the nuances of the product so that they are sort of kind of on the same page as we are whenever they sign up for our account and start using the product. So, you know, when we do think about our investments. We just think about like, okay, how do we actually change the conversation about what our product actually is? It's not a website builder. It's, it's a, it's a abstraction over these underlying technologies. And we have to actually get these users extremely bought in to that particular product philosophy in order for them to even be successful. So I think a lot of our time, especially on the marketing side, is really, really spent on, hey, like Webflow is a completely new kind of tool. And if you want to take a look at our gallery, if you want to take it at our showcase, you'll actually see that it's like a very different kind of outcome. You're getting sites that are responsive. You're getting sites that are dynamic. They've got great interactions and hover effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Things that other tools are not able to provide you. So our emphasis on building those tools, first of all, and then marketing and creating the brand around Webflow to make it stand out as like a completely category defining type of product allows us to actually sign up users and activate users that will actively invest their time and energy getting on the same page we are with regards to our product and the things that it can do, which requires a mental leap, which requires education, which requires probably more hours than I I care to admit to have users successful. And when we have those users really bought in then churn and reduction kind of comes, you know, more or less for free. Like, yeah, exactly. You have users that understand the value of the product. 
as they are experiencing it. And then also the brand of the company and of the product is also aspirational. It's empowering, right? So those are some intangible things that we have, that we have to do, honestly, to really kind of separate us from, you know, other tools that are out there because we have to kind of, you know, get these users on the same page we are. They're bought into the product. They're bought into the methodology. They're bought into the learning curve. And then the retention comes as as a, as an outcome of that. Absolutely. So, like, I mean, it sounds as well something we talk about quite a bit on the show, but really like understanding and knowing who the ideal customer is to begin with. But then more importantly, is really about how do you position your product so that your customer really understands and gets what the product is. So, once they've come in, they know what to expect and they're not just going to be like churning off because there's a mismatch between like your comms and your marketing and what the product actually delivers or is. Um, That's right. You can definitely see obviously a lot of work has gone into that as well. I think um, looking through like Webflow's website and uh, like doing a little bit of research this time around because myself previously, obviously I've been uh, like using WordPress time and time again. And uh, what really attracted to me to was it was your showcase and seeing what was possible um, with uh, Webflow, which was something that was unseen, I think, like with any other service you mentioned, like Wix or Shopify. So really like a couple of things really helped to distinguish and separate uh, Webflow, at least in my perception, from uh, whatever else was out there on the market. Um, So... uh, you focus as well then like really heavily on the marketing side. Uh, you talked a little bit about to the concept of onboarding as well. Yep. Um, when we think about onboarding and you mentioned something as well, you said, oh, wow, you're a power user. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on that concept and hear sort of like how you're going about categorizing users, like what process did you go about? Is it something that you actively track as well? And uh, how did yep. you go about setting these metrics internally? So the topic of customer segmentation is actually top of mind. Um, This is actually an exercise that we have recently embarked on here at Webflow. And I think it could be interesting to your listeners to kind of just like maybe share Webflow's like journey there. And I I don't know if that's something that could be interesting, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a crack because I actually think it's, it's pretty interesting. So, Seven, seven years ago, when we started the company, we more or less built the product um, thinking that we would be the ideal target customer. So Vlad, Sergi, and myself, we all built websites for, for personal reasons. We built it for clients. You know, Vlad built it for a lot of dentists. Sergi was his designer. And we just thought that it was like, okay, like we just need a tool to allow someone like us, like freelance web developers and freelance web designers to quickly mock up a website and then actually bring the design experience straight into the development experience. But, you know, the target, the ideal customer profile, the target persona that we're building after was these freelance web designers. And that was the persona that we had for three or four years. And about three years ago, we took a hard look at our data and we were kind of astonished to find that, oh, wow, there's actually more than just freelancers using Webflow, more than just agencies signing up for our product, but end businesses 
are as well. And we just thought, just like, oh, why would end businesses also, you know, use this this product? Aren't there other products out there that do, uh, you know, solve this this problem much better than we do? Like, you know, the aforementioned tools. And then we started going down the path of really understanding all of our product personas, but then also recently we started really understanding and started segmenting our buyer segments as well. So the difference that we have uh, or the view that we have internally is, is that our product personas are actually very, very different than the end buyers. And the way we have, the, the reason why we want to make that distinction is because the concerns and the motivations of the personas are very, very different amongst each other. So we actually feel that we've done a fairly decent job of roadmap roadmapping features and building features to solve uh, the majority of our customers. But it was only until very recently when we started thinking about the end benefactor of the website that we started to really take a hard look at. It was like, oh, actually, it's not just freelancers. We've got end businesses that are benefiting from the website. So you know, there's freelancers that are out there and they're building a lot of sites, but we've never really actually considered who those sites are for. And that was a really big revelation to us. It was just like, you know, wow, like it took us a really long time to actually understand that these freelancers are being fed because of the demand that the, of the businesses that they serve. And then we started to think about, all right, what do these businesses look like? And we started to really take a hard look at, it was like, okay, how large are these businesses? How many employees do we have? We try to look at firmographic information. We look, try to look at industries. And then what we ultimately saw was that Webflow is used by a variety of businesses, not just SMBs, not just very small SMBs, but, you know, growth stage startups, uh, public companies, Fortune 500s. And this really, really surprised us. So now the viewpoint is, and we're still actually doing a lot of the the, the legwork here, yeah. is, is that in order to actually navigate our business in the most ideal way, we actually have to create um, essentially like a company level data book. And this data book is something that we're pushing internally to just get a very, very strong understanding of all of our customer personas and all the different buyer segments cut by employee size, cut by industry, et cetera, just so that we can start to really understand just like, oh, like Webflow actually has thousands of businesses that are, you know, generating a billion dollars in revenue or something like that. And then that will actually be super important for our marketing teams, for our product teams to then go back and actually look at what opportunities we have just given where we're positioned in the market. So I think that's a really long-winded way of saying like we have gone through several iterations of trying to discover like who our ideal customer profiles actually are. And you know for four years it was actually very easy because we thought it was just we thought it was just, it was just one. Yeah. But the reality is, is that it's actually a fairly matrixed customer composition that we still don't have an extremely good handle of, but we're starting to get there. And I think once we do, then our, our product roadmap together with our go-to-market strategy will be extremely tactical. It'll be extremely 
incisive, and then we'll be able to start making the right investments even more in, in even better places. Better. Yeah, it, it's really, really funny, but uh, we're actually going through the exact same exercise at Hotshot at the moment, and I'm as well one of the ones working on the, the research. Um, yeah. And uh, similarly to, to you, like you're describing, I think the product started out as David, our CEO, um, came from a specific background and uh, the product itself, like the initial thought process was like the features and everything we're building was around that persona uh, coming from like an agency background and solving some of the challenges of like multiple scripts and different tools. And interesting, similarly, we did the same thing where we started looking at, okay, so it, there may be agencies and agencies make up a good percentage of our customer base, so around 30%. But then who are all these other companies that have started using Hotjar over and about and really trying to understand uh, what is the firmographic and demographic uh, makeup of our customers and looking at, like you said, like at a company level, who's the actual end benefactor, uh, but then also on like a persona level, like what are these roles and people doing it? So it's really, really timely. And I'm actually interested, you mentioned you putting together a data book and uh, I'd be intrigued to sort of hear what your process was like in a little bit more detail around figuring yeah. out some of these data points around companies and was it using a service like Clearbit yeah. to enrich the data? Like, have you been doing uh, things manually, asking it sign up? Like, what is it that you've been doing? Great question. So <clears throat> I, I described the data book to our team as, we had to think of it almost as like the Rosetta Stone to the company. So we actually want to try as hard as possible to remove as much bias, as much room for interpretation from the data book as possible. It has to be like rooted in like truth. And in order to do that, um, we actually have to remove a lot from the data book. It's got to only contain information that we can attribute the source to. And one of the really tough things about that is that we've actually done a lot of surveys and we've actually done a lot of different types of research, but uh, you know, those are things that we will try to weave in only if we feel like it's, it's unbiased, only if we feel like the way we've constructed the surveys is going to give us a very picture-perfect clear view. So the approach that we've taken is we actually kind of start from like uh, the first principles of like, what are the ideal outcomes of the data book? And I think if any company goes about constructing a data book without the ideal outcomes in mind, then you're more or less just going to end up with just a bunch of raw data and no one's going to really kind of make sense of it all. So for us, some of the ideal outcomes that we had are we want the data book to serve as a good foundation to work from for all sorts of pricing and packaging efforts to help us understand our go-to-market strategy better, specifically who we want to target, which customers are the profitable customers, which customers are the less. And then also from a product standpoint, trying to understand exactly what features people really care about, which ones are being used. And then also some of the psychological factors, like of the things that we actually sell, which ones do people say they value, but don't actually value in actuality when they're using the product in terms of like people say they value, um, you know, 10,000 CMS items, but they actually only use a couple hundred. So we kind of split things out that way. And then the other thing that we also layered on is we wanted to try and weave in the competitive analysis in addition to our understanding of the TAM. Uh, 
So those are all things that we felt we can provide extremely quantitative answers to that didn't leave a lot of room for interpretation. So the first section of our data book is a TAM where we kind of split by all the different buyer segments that we're currently aware of. We try to map out the revenue opportunity there, but then we try to weave in a little bit of qualitative understanding for our product market fit in those particular segments. So that's where we kind of took some of the data that we ran from previous surveys, where we actually saw that it was like, okay, for companies that are 50 to 200 people, we actually have stronger product market fit than companies that are between 20 and 50, just as an example. Yeah. So that that will give us not just a good idea of, of like the, the TAM, but then the TAM also cut by how sticky our product is. And then that'll, and that's especially important for, for our type of product because we see adoption from all, all parts of, of the stack. We see solopreneurs adopting us all the way up to Fortune 500. So then that is information that we feel like is super valuable. So it's, it's still a work in progress, but we're really, really happy about where it's, where it's at. And then we've got, you know, a lot of feature usage data. We have a lot of, uh, what else do we have in there? We have a lot of firmographic data. So we've taken all of our Stripe subscriptions and we've uh, cross-referenced it with Clearbit. Uh, We use Segment and then we have the Clearbit uh, integration turned on. Yep. So it made it very, very easy for our, our data scientists to enrich that data. So we're actually pretty excited about where where it is at and the insights that we can glean from it in the near future. Yeah, I'm really as well like excited because this is actually something we're going to embark on now as well. Like really started quantitatively um, as your thing. And I think one of the things we wanted to look at, and I'm excited, we'll also be interviewing Rahul from Superhuman soon. I don't know if you've uh, read First Round Capital. It's a really great resource on how they iterated the way to product market fit. Um, and literally just asking that question is like how um disappointed would you would you be if you could no longer use our service or product and then like uh, somewhat um very disappointed or not at all so we also similarly doing something very similar to you where we're going to then once we have this idea of the firmographic and demographic data is then overlaying that on top of like uh, this like product market fit qualitative survey to see sort of are there any specific segments or um, specific like attributes of a company that uh, tend to be a little bit more sticky when it comes to product market fit. So, yep. uh, it's nice and validating hearing that there's others out there doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we didn't invent this either. So I want to make yeah. that very, very clear. <laughs> you, you mentioned something as well uh, that I think is very, very important and it's very difficult to do is to eliminate bias. Um, and like I can speak honestly as well, I think at Hotshow, when we first took a crack at going around doing this, like, we inherently, uh, inadvertently introduced the bias into our uh, research that we did, uh, where we took uh, the initial cohort that we selected and we selected like their current spend as a um, as a segment, which we like took a cohort and then we analyzed what that user looked, what that user group looked like. But inherently, by just taking the spend, due to the nature of the way our pricing and packaging worked, we potentially eliminated a lot of big businesses that just didn't fit our pricing and packaging model. So. 
it is very difficult to how are you sort of treating this as well and i think obviously when you say bias like you mentioned earlier you had your own ideas of who the product was for and like is there something you just written the team know like there is no sort of uh, right or wrong like we really need to just detach ourselves from what we knew before like how did you work with the team on this to eliminate the bias so two things I think the most important one is making sure that the way we are collecting information is not biased and the way we're analyzing the information is not biased. So by collecting biased information, that actually refers to qualitative methods of running a survey. For example, um, in the absence of user researchers, for example, there can be surveys that are constructed that you know, more or less ask leading questions uh, that kind of get to the answer that you're looking for. And you can actually construct, uh, there's just so many potential you know, potholes that uh, you know, survey designers uh, run into um, when, when collecting that data. And then also when you're pulling data, also from quantitative sources. So like the example that you gave where, you know, you only looked at a particular segment. So I think it's really important to look at all segments, but then you're also looking at removing the bias of your status quo. And by that, I mean, like if you're looking at revenue data and if you're looking at, Oh, which segments pay us more money, you're only looking at the revenue data of your business today, not your business tomorrow. Exactly. So that is something that you have to be extremely careful about if you're taking a look at an Excel sheet or something you're, you're saying, it's like, oh yeah, we've got all these businesses in this segment and they drive so much of our revenue. We should only go after these businesses. Well, that's with your existing pricing and packaging. That has nothing to do with where you're looking, like uh, it has nothing to do with how you're uh, optimizing the, this, this business for the future. So that's, that's one bias. And then when you're analyzing the data, that's also a really important place to remove bias. For example, you know, as a founder, I'm probably the most biased person in the company. So something that I try to do as much as possible is share the fact that it's like, hey, I'm actually very biased. I actually do think that freelancers are extremely important to our growth or something like that. Yeah. And then I will then share my point of view. So then like in an interpersonal and team dynamic, at least you're being upfront about where your biases may, may lie. For sure. Secondly, I think it's going to be very contextual on exactly what problems you're solving for. For example, if you're trying to solve for a pricing and packaging problem, and if you have a particular bias about where a feature should live, the, the truth of it is, is that when you're discuss, discussing something as, as sensitive as pricing or packaging, you know, there's gonna be a lot of loud voices inside the company about where and how to monetize a particular feature. You're gonna have PMs and engineers saying that it should go on all plans. You're going to have business people say that like, this is only something that you know, we're going to sell on our enterprise tier. What's going to be really, really important is that the company has to come up with a set of pricing principles to essentially eliminate that bias so that everyone is kind of rooted in the same philosophy with how you want to approach something. And something like pricing and packaging is a perfect example for coming up with a list of you know, three to five uh, principles or philosophies that the entire company wants to abide by. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely like, I see the pricing and packaging is a sensitive topic. It's like, do we put this uh, for all users so we can use it as a retention driving initiative? Is it a monetization? 
initiative. Yeah. Like uh, it, there's always going to be debate when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh, and, and I'm also glad as well that you pointed out in terms of like the future looking business versus the current situation, because this was actually another thing when we did this like two years ago, whatever it was, was also a big mistake is that we just looked at uh, successful customers at the time and we tried to understand what their makeup was. Uh, and then because we had a certain percentage that was maybe higher in one segment, we we like focus on that segment as opposed to also looking at the inverse view of just looking at how many people signed up during a specific period. Uh, like maybe 12 months ago and how many of them are still with us today and maybe that the dynamics that we have a certain extra portion of a specific segment is only due to the fact that our marketing was targeted towards them and perhaps they were the early adopters but now moving into like sort of the early majority and late majority that has changed and uh, so it's really really important to be thinking I think when doing this work is that you're not just looking at who it is today but where this market's going and who this market's going to be in the future so very good point. Um, I see we're running a little bit short on time now as well, Brian, but I have one question that I ask every guest on the show, and I think for you maybe it's, it's a little bit different, but um, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now uh, then and just say you've joined a new company now. Uh, you arrive at the company and churn retention is not doing great. Um, the CEO of this company has asked uh, you to try and turn things around uh, for them. And they've given you 90 days to try and show some results. Like, what would you want to be wanting to do in the first 90 days to deliver some results for the company? Um, the most obvious one that jumps to my head, given that my background is an engineer and products uh, person, is just to go super deep into the product. Because I think as much as customer interviews, as much as data dives, can be helpful. I think there's nothing that can replace someone's intuition, especially someone that has seen a lot of products, seen a lot of SaaS project, pro, uh, products get built, uh, built a lot of them, and kind of just develop a very early hypothesis about you know, where the product is, how good it is at activating, how clear the value propositions are, how, how good is... Um, the, the conversion flows, and then also just de developing just a very, you know, almost emotional connection to the product. I think if I were to work for a CEO and that was my 90-day my outcome, my goal at the end of the 90 days is to really be able to tell um, at every stage of the customer journey how I feel when I am exposed to the product, how I am activated in the product, how I am converted, and then also how I'm monetized and then retained in the product. And I think describing it from an emotional point of view as like, hey, I was actually extremely excited when I first signed up, but then after I started using the product, I felt defeated. Describing that like emotional journey, plotting it out as like a line graph almost can actually visualize a potential user's emotional journey and then that would be able to paint a clear picture for a ceo for a company to determine exactly where to focus time and energy yeah i love that it's like the sort of the journey mapping but then attaching like the emotional component to it and uh, seeing how that changes over time it's really important you want to make sure that you're keeping people excited about the product and removing any of those friction points that are really bringing them down um, cool. Well, is there anything else, like any other final thoughts that you'd love to like to share us with us today? Any ways they can keep up? Anything exciting happening at Webflow? 
that you'd like to mention? Uh, no, I think like the no code movement is new. It's very, very exciting. It's something that has something for everyone. Um, whether you're a marketer, designer, engineer, um, I think it's something that not just Webflow has a very big uh, part of, but uh, a lot of other companies are part of the no-code movement. But the most important thing is that we have to remember that movements are made up of people. And uh, I think without uh, the amazing community behind SaaS products and the no-code movement, uh, things would be very different. And that's what makes uh, the this particular movement of no code, very exciting to be a part of. So thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm excited to see where Webflow goes from here because I can just see the future possibilities and potential it does have. Exciting. Thanks very much for joining, Brian. So best of luck now going forward. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.